today on Foodstuffs. Jess talks to a superwoman who is fostering a collaborative community of creative caterers. And then Brian learns more about rye and how to build the perfect whiskey cabinet. You can kind of start extrapolating based on the flavor profile. And so that's kind of what we get into uh, with whiskey drinkers. I usually like saying, well, if you like this, try this, try that. Very often we talk about progress as in more or fancier or newer. I don't necessarily think that across Toronto we need more kitchens. We need better functioning kitchens for people and for food. I can do that. Do that. From (laughs) From Alcoholics Architecture in London, you're listening to Foodstuffs. Well done. (laughs) Thanks. Welcome to Foodstuffs, a podcast about food and culture and their intersections. I'm Jessica Walker. And I'm Brian Coleman. The end is near. It really is. It's episode 18. I know. Only two more before the end of the season, Brian. Are you you rubbing your eye? Are you sad? (laughs) I just have an itch in my eye. Okay. (laughs) I just got something in my eye. It's been a... What a wild ride, Jess. (laughs) You still like hanging out with me? Yeah, sure. (laughs) But we're getting ahead of ourselves. We're not done yet. We still got... Yeah, we have a whole other episode before we only have two left. That's right. Why do we do that? I don't know. But we... I mean, you know, it's been... It has been a great season. We've met some really great people. One of them was Glenford Jameson. That's right. The food lawyer we spoke to back in episode 13. And Glenford, he's always trying to connect us with people. He recently reached out and connected uh, us with Mark Bylock, who is host of the Whiskey Topic podcast and also author of the book, The Whiskey Cabinet. But more on that a little bit later. Yeah, well, actually, it's interesting that you mentioned Glenford um, because in a roundabout way, he's actually the reason for our first interview as well. That's right. There's something that we've been coming to realize about food advocacy work here in Toronto. Seems like everyone knows each other. Um, For a city as big as Toronto, it ceases to amaze me just how many people know each other. Vanessa refers to her and Glenford and Letitia Buen from Black Creek, who you were talking to two episodes ago, um, and others like them as long stayers. Right. Uh, basically, this is really hard work. Um, it's not for the faint of heart. So, if I understand correctly, those who manage to hack it in this in this world come to know each other pretty regularly based on the, all of the different types of events and fundraisers. and Just being in it for a really long time. Yeah, exactly. So yeah. so tell me more about Vanessa. Vanessa is Vanessa Ling Yu, um, another superwoman like Letitia. She's got a varied background um, stemming from work in academia where she did work in public health, uh, focusing on the social determinants of health. And you've mentioned this term before. Can you explain it for people that maybe don't, doesn't jump out of them? Yeah, yeah. Basically, social determinants of health are the factors in a person's life beyond just eating and lifestyle, the obvious um, health things that we always think of that impact someone's well-being. So that includes mental health. That includes your income. That includes where you live geographically and kind of the makeup of your neighborhood, things like that. Okay. So, um, since completing her work in academia, she has done a number of different jobs 
from working at a research firm to working with CAMH, uh, the Center for Addictions and Mental Health here in uh, Toronto. Um, she helped develop an eating disorder education program for kind of non-traditional populations that are increasingly affected by eating disorders. My sister talks a lot about that. You kind of have the picture of a rich white girl um, when you think of eating disorders that is so far from the case at this point in time which is really scary and crazy so she was kind of at the forefront of developing programming around that Um, she is the daughter of Chinese immigrants who owned a Chinese restaurant in New Glasgow Nova Scotia which just happened to close a couple weeks ago after 38 years in business beside the point Um, all this to say she has been working in food essentially her whole life and then has sort of come into a role as a food advocate over the last 10 years or so in Toronto so this brings us to one of her current projects, which is called Cater Toronto. Um, Launched in 2012, Cater Toronto was founded to help marginalized groups in the city, kind of low income and newcomers um, being the main groups, I guess, start legal food businesses. I could say a lot more, but I think we should probably get into the interview and then you and I can catch up after. Okay, cool. So here's Jess in conversation with Vanessa Ling Yu, the principal consultant for Cater Toronto. It came out of a need to um, come together to reduce some of the huge barriers that face all sorts of food entrepreneurs, like healthcare services, salon services, food services are very much regulated, and there's a lot of costs involved to entering that space. And um, when I was working with a lot of community food initiatives, there was very much interest in doing food, but not always enough understanding and enough financial resources to get into the um, the space where they could do it as a business. Right, and can you mention the word barriers? Can you just name a few barriers that someone who was considering um, getting involved in uh, food production would encounter? Sure, so uh, navigating the legal and regulatory guidelines setting up a commercial kitchen, including the commercial equipment. For instance, an eight foot, maybe eight to 12 foot fan that has to be in your kitchen space is around $40,000. And that's Mm -hmm. just to start, not including your stoves and fridges and all of the above and rent. Right, and something that, for someone who isn't involved in any of this, how could you predict all of those little pieces and me hearing that right now, like $40,000 for a fan is insane <laughs> and incredibly prohibitive. Um, who are the, the people that you find yourself helping out the most and who are you connecting? Sure. Uh, so I had already been volunteering in lots of these neighborhoods and that's how I was hearing about these challenges. So we began in low-income neighborhoods um, where there are a lot of marginalized um, individuals that make up communities Mm -hmm. and many of them have you know many of them are either newcomers low education um, job insecure working many different jobs um, but really interested in food and having a lot of food knowledge and delicious ideas Mm -hmm. Uh, and that the people want (laughs) yeah absolutely so uh, we began in Pretty much every low-income community in Toronto, all over the city. Okay. And so how did you know that this was a solution for the issues that you were seeing in these communities? Well, there was two sides of this. It was not just about the caterers. I also know that like, from a regular restaurant perspective, 
many restaurants were struggling to meet their rent also. Mm-hmm. As we know, across the city, people are closing because they're not a, real estate's expensive. Mm-hmm. So I knew that it was not going to be such a huge sell to those who own the kitchens. Right. Um, but for the caterers, this group, Cater Toronto, finally gave them a chance to be able to talk to others who were similarly challenged. Right. Or further down the line had overcome these barriers already and yeah. had um, some advice to give kind of thing. Yeah. And so that's an interesting piece because they're, they're sort of steering the ship a little bit, right? And that is through the panel that in Cater Toronto, is that right? So, yeah, can you just describe that role or that piece of how Cater Toronto works? Sure, so we have a coordinating committee and um, they're made up of caterers, but they're also made up of like staff of community organizations because, uh, and I should just go back, there are three types of catering groups that we work with. Okay. One is uh, what I call quiet operators. Mm-hmm. Um, others would call them illegal. Mm-hmm. Uh, the city likes to call them yet to be certified. And what that means is they may be cooking from their home. They may be cooking in um, commercial, ki- sorry, community kitchens that are not certified as commercial. Okay. Um, would an example of that be like at a church or yeah okay yeah so those would be considered what what I would consider quiet operators um, the second is micro enterprises and so for all intents and purposes they're you know they might be renting a commercial kitchen or they might have their own it might be like one to five people mm-hmm. but there's only so far that you can go you could have a team of supermen and women and in betweens but in the end of the day there's still like so many um, things to learn and resources and supports to access as a group. And what I like to remind is, you know, we don't compete, compete among each other. We're little tiny specks compared to large um, industry like Subway, for example, or right. McDonald's. Right. So banding together, sharing resources, which are physical, but also Knowledge. just information, yeah. which is probably even huger. Um, and then, yeah, just sort of creating a safe, safe zone or protecting each other in a, in a way, right? Yeah. And then the third is um, social enterprises, and those tend to be aligned, or they are aligned with a charity or a nonprofit, and um, they might do catering as a part of their programming. So um, an example would be Afghan Women's Catering Collective. Okay. Another that is no longer around, but was had amazing food when they did is uh, called Delightfully Yours mm-hmm. and it was a part of North York Community House um, and they started that because they were having challenges maintaining attendance at ESL programming Okay, but all the ladies love to cook right. so they kind of melded together different initiatives to right. create this catering initiative a spoonful of sugar kind of like yeah. <laughs> make it a little bit um, more palatable Literally, I guess, yeah. um, to and functional, right? Like, I'm offering my food to you. I need to be able to answer your questions about it. That kind of thing. Yeah. Um, very it's cool. It's also very two-way learning, right? In the traditional classroom, it's the teacher teaching and has all the information. But when you add in this food element, same as gardening or and many other things, it becomes a conversation where there's dialogue happening versus. Mm just one directional or unidirectional. Yeah, that's 
That's very cool. Um, which is sort of a funk that is a good metaphor for what Cater Toronto does in general, right? It's sort of advocating to say, this is something that the community wants and we want access to this food because there hasn't been a huge presence in this way. In order to do that, we need to demystify this process um, for the greater good, right? It's not thinking this is an entrepreneur who wants this thing and like we're gonna help them out some patronizing like whatever we want this food and let's let's help them hurry up and get it to us right um that's really neat yeah so looking forward do you is this a sort of project that you want to work yourself out of this work and the need for um the role of cater toronto like is there a future where you won't be necessary or do you think that this is like just growing and will become further entrenched and and helpful going forward well i believe that and i i have tended to do contracts and projects and work where when i leave it's because i can um independent of the contract nature of it, mm-hmm. but that a community is kind of self-sustaining and supporting. But I think that the functions of Cater Toronto will be ongoing because they're relevant. But I think that we have identified like three kind of core things. Like, you know, very often we talk about progress as in more or fancier or newer. I don't necessarily think that across Toronto we need more kitchens we need better functioning kitchens for people and for food Um, so I think that the kitchen function will always kind Mm -hmm. of be necessary Um, when it comes to its supports and administration maybe it's a little less um, you know here are your tools but it might be like how do we make those tools much more efficient Mm -hmm. um, or training to use those tools much more efficient uh, because there is always going to be learning, and I, I do think and want um, the network to take on a little bit more of that learning and really putting their voice to, well, this stack of sheets that I had to fill out to register my business was so inefficient. Mm-hmm. I would love them to be like, this is how it would be easier. Yeah. You know, and so I think like it's it's less about obviating the need for what Cater Toronto does than refining it and simplifying it and... On the last piece, the market opportunities, this is where I would definitely like to strengthen. Mm-hmm. I need to kind of look at some funding sources, maybe, and really fine-tune and make our website really easy to navigate so that people can order um, as eaters, but also so the caterers can be profiled and have their menus featured. And also maybe a back end that they can communicate and share tips among themselves. You know, like if I had the resources of say like, I don't know, like Uber or like a regular tech startup, Mm -hmm. that might have been the front end of what I was working on. But because this is, it's a social enterprise and my two primary clients are the caterers and the eating clients. And before the eating clients ever came around, it was about the caterers, and it still remains with the caterers. And for that reason, we actually haven't ever advertised. Yeah. First, we want to make sure that um, they're ready. And 
because many of them um, are in marginalized in situations, they're under greater scrutiny than the general population. Right. So I feel like it would be a disservice to blast out with a really fancy marketing campaign until we can be sure, not because I do not have faith, it's because I have faith and I don't want, you know, some of the inappropriate scrutiny to get us before we actually head out. Right, which is why you are the one that's making this happen because you are sensitive to that element of it. Um, so what are some of the prospects for the future, the near future for Cater Toronto? Uh, I know based on our numbers from last year that we need a permanent um, kitchen. Um, and most likely it'll be downtown. Mm -hmm. uh, there will be a public facing side of it. Um, but this space will give us a home base where we can prioritize Cater Toronto members, whereas in the partner kitchens, we respectfully understand that there's a lot of things happening in their spaces, and we're not always a priority, which, you know, makes sense too. Yeah, it's not personal, it's just the, the situation. Somebody described it as, when we get this space, it could be um, like the head of um, an octopus, mm -hmm. so that it's kind of, yeah, like the headquarters where there are tentacles that go to the others, and it just becomes like a bit of a helm and or a hub of sorts. Yeah. Cool. Well, that's exciting. Yeah. I look forward to hearing the progress on that front. Thank you so much. Thank you. Okay. And that was Vanessa Ling Yu of Cater Toronto speaking with Jess. And that was 13 and a bit relatively neat minutes of what I understand was a much, much longer conversation, right? <laughs> um, that is an understatement. I think we probably have spent five or six hours chatting, at least at this point. Um, and I think I sort of alluded it to it in her intro. But basically, Vanessa has worked for a long time with uh, similar groups in and around Toronto, basically every type of underserved group in the city. As a result, she's thought a lot about how to broaden the range of supports to help people make the lives they want for themselves, which is sort of what we were jamming on in the lengthy conversations that we had, because I think a lot about this stuff, too. Um, but before speaking with her, I never had to think about all of the bits and pieces you need to line up in order to start a food business, um, catering, pre-packaged foods, whatever it may be. And as we say in the interview, just how pro prohibitive all of that all of those little bits and pieces are. Um, so in the past, I've mentioned how amazing working in food is as a career option. I guess I was thinking of it in terms of working for other people in a kitchen and then based on your own drive, um, excelling and eventually gaining the resources to start something for yourself if you want. But imagine, for example, how overwhelming moving to a new place where you don't speak the language would be and how powerful it would be to be able to do something you know how to do well, cook tasty and delicious things, and then offer that product to your new community. And that's what I think is so powerful about the service Cater Toronto is offering, is basically trying to offer support, demystify that process, as we said, and, and allow someone to kind of take their new future into their hands, you know? And yeah, and, and since speaking with you, you've been talking a lot about where food food programming lies in the policy and government realm. Yeah, that definitely came out of our talks. So basically, I've been working on this thought about the gray area between three levels of government that concern themselves with food. It, 
examples would be health on a national level, um, agriculture on a provincial level, and what is particularly relevant here, the city of Toronto issuing food handlers certificates um, Yeah, in the city. So I had to leave it out of this conversation, but Vanessa and Cater Toronto were involved in changing some of the racist language that was a part of the food handler's manual, which is amazing. Check it out if you're curious, um, but I digress. Three levels of government. So all of these programs that we're discussing occupy this sort of gray zone that links these departments. In academic speak, they are multidisciplinary and do the work of patching the holes in between. Basically, if these departments are doing the classic silo or not speaking to each other thing that governments do, then here come these programs like Cater Toronto, like Black Creek Community Farm, like the PACT program that we would have covered in last season that are trying to make our communities better and safer and providing opportunities that create more sustainable futures for groups of people that have been historically left out time after time. But it is on the back of hardworking, passionate people who are often working on a shoestring and without nearly enough support to protect the longevity of these programs that are obviously valued and valuable to all of us, not just those that are being directly served by the groups involved, such as Cater Toronto. Um, you know, like I want to eat the food that these mainly women are cooking all the time. Um, also, the programming at Black Creek providing a healthy space for a community that really needs one. Basically, we need to figure out how to take care of these programs and the people that are busting their butts to make them happen, who understand the specific and sensitive needs of these communities and how to best serve them, and then provide meaningful support to create longevity for businesses like the ones her and I were talking about just now. Next up, Mark Bylock and the whiskey cabinet. I need a drink. <laughs> yeah, so a few weeks back, we met up with Mark to talk about podcasting and to try a few new whiskeys. Well, Mark and I tried hey, a few Hey, hey, I had a whiskey sour. Listen. Yeah, okay, sure. That, that's true, that's true. <laughs> but it was really interesting for me because I've never really considered myself a connoisseur, but I definitely appreciate a good whiskey. And Mark is obviously, he's just a great guy to go out with and have a good time and discover some new things. And he's super knowledgeable. He's generous. And my favorite, not at all pretentious. Yeah, it's, I mean, I know this well. It's tough to be in that space where you're trying to discover and appreciate new tastes and have it not be pretentious when yeah. you explain that to the people around you. It really it. is. It is. And I think I'm especially sort of sensitive to it. But Mark is great. Honestly, he's very down to earth. He's very knowledgeable. He just seems to be just as comfortable talking about sort of bar rail rye as he would uh, like a single malt scotches. And he's tried all of them. And honestly, he's got sort of favorites and recommendations at every every price point. So I really like that. And he really made him the perfect person to help me build my perfect whiskey <laughs> cabinet. This is something you've thought a lot about, isn't it? It is sort of like increasingly <laughs> as I get older and like the whiskey actually stays in my house and doesn't like go out immediately. You have a whiskey cabinet? I do have a bit of a whiskey cabinet. <laughs> a liquor drawer or a yeah. liquor cabinet, I should say. And you know, you want like a good mix in there. You want, you know, you have different people coming over for there's different circumstances. Maybe it's just some buddies coming over and you've got a, a whiskey to, you know, mix something with, or maybe you just want to sip have a little sip with your wife or something like that or you've got your well you're talking my, about yourself <laughs> i'm talking about myself there. <laughs> or if you have like for me like i got like uh family coming over and like in-laws coming over so i gotta have their brands uh -huh. so it's sort of building it up but you know trying to find 
good value and having great whiskeys and mm-hmm. not spending, you know, five hundred dollars <laughs> or something like that. Right. That makes sense. Um, well, should we have a listen? Yeah, let's do it. All right. So here we have Brian speaking with whiskey expert Mark Bylock. Rye was really introduced. Uh, as far as we can tell by German sellers there, that knew a little bit about rye, and they were just like, okay, this is what we're gonna do. Um, and it added flavor. Um, so corn-based whiskey back then had very little flavor. It was essentially moonshine, slightly aged in barrels, but didn't have a lot of flavor. Um, rye gave it the flavor, and in Canada, we call the rye grain the flavor grain. Uh, and we don't appreciate that enough. I really don't think we do. I think we've, we've had, you know, through our history, we've had this big effect not only on Canadian whiskey, but on American whiskey. Uh, because American whiskey uses rye for flavoring, in, even in their bourbons. Um, and to the point where if you're having, a, you know, I know one of your favorites is a bullet, uh, yeah. bullet bourbon. Yeah. Bullet bourbon, uh, the reason why that became big was because it had a lot of rye in the mash bill, in what was fermented. Um, so really, uh, Canadian settlers primarily had this big effect on the whiskey industry in North America in general. And it all has to do with rind. And, and it's a really great kind of floral, perfumey, wonderful grain that gives you all sorts of notes, uh, depending how it's uh, treated. And uh, and it, it matters. And it's a big, a big part of the Canadian whiskey story. And we still drink a lot of rye here. Yeah, we do. Uh, we don't define rye the same in Canada. So... In the right. U.S., if you buy an American rye, it has to be 51% rye in the in the mash bill. In the because but to make whiskey, first you make a beer. So 51% of the of the of everything has to be rye, and then they'll use corn and malted barley or something like that. Um, in Canada, we do things a little bit differently. Uh, we we're just known as a rye uh, because of traditions. But we don't have the same regulations. No, we are lacking in regulations. You can technically have. A Canadian rye that has no rye in it whatsoever. In Canada, we only use maybe 10% rye or 20% rye a lot of the times, but we ferment it and then we distill it separately. So that rye is highly concentrated. It, it's just it's been aged on its own. It's been uh, it's it's gone through the process on its own, and then we blend it afterwards with corn. Right, but I think that sort of highlights, I believe, the average Canadians. Um, understanding of rye and of whiskey is that, you know, I think a lot of Canadians wouldn't have known that. We just drink it here. Like, we are a nation that drinks whiskey and beer, and I don't think we think about it too much. Can we talk maybe about why it is that Canadians like whiskey, maybe without them even knowing what it is that they like about it? Yeah, you know, Canadian whiskey in general is is an authentic product that come came from a process of necessity, uh, and really, uh, you know, all the things we're talking about today, sustainability, uh, local farming, everything we talk about today has always been a present in Canadian whiskey industry. Uh, Goodham and Wart's uh, distiller district um, that started from Millers, and literally Millers were um, Goodham and Wart's were Millers. They they serves most of Southern Ontario. They're just a, a big company. And th- what they ended up doing is making whiskey out of leftover products. Um, and so whiskey was always kind of like, okay, we have grain left over. What are we going to do with it? They made whiskey with it because it became sustainable. Now you had a shelf-stable product. 
Um, but not only that, the, um, the byproduct of whiskey after you ferment the grain is protein heavy. So you had, uh, you eat up all the sugar, the yeast eats up all the sugar, creates alcohol and gas. Um, leftover is a very protein heavy grain that they would give back to the farmers. And most distilleries today still give that grain back to the farmers for free. And so whiskey has always had this kind of place as the part of the ecosystem, a very important part of the ecosystem. And even though we only used a fraction of the grains for whiskey making, um, it became a big part of the system to the point where Gooderham and Wurtz got out of the milling business entirely and started a whiskey company. How do people find new whiskeys? I, like I was saying, one of the ways I think a lot of Canadians find it is, hey, somebody brings a different bottle over, right? Yeah. Um, but how do people discover different whiskeys and uh, what should they be looking for? The, if you live in Toronto, there's a lot of events in Toronto. Uh, the Caledonians uh, Bar in Toronto, Great Whiskey Bar, they do events for free. You can literally go there. you got to sign up early, like a month early perhaps. But you can go there and you can try a bunch of different whiskeys for free. Um, and a lot of people that, that bought my book, I, and this is the biggest compliment to me, is like people buy the book and then start whiskey clubs and then read through the book and see, okay, here's what I like. And then here's other things that I may like. Um, so, you know, if you love bullet uh, bourbon, you're going to love Four Roses. Um, you can kind of start extrapolating based on the flavor profile. And so that's kind of what we get into uh, with whiskey drinkers. I usually like saying, well, if you like this, try this, try that. Um, a lot of bourbon drinkers love peated scotch. Why? I don't know. I couldn't give you the answer, but they do. Right. I, I, if I find a bourbon drinker that's very like oaky, sweet bourbons, I give them a very peated single malt scotch and they're they're in love they, they think it's a perfect uh, perfect for them so what if you're a like canadian club or like 40 creek drinker what I, can you do to sort of broaden your your horizons a little bit and i mean to be started with 40 creek's a great place to start uh canadian club is a great place to start uh canadian club has 100 percent rye which is you know 100 yeah. they're 100 rye product um, I like, but that's a, we should say that's a specific bottle. That's a specific not, bottle. The yeah. Canadian club, the standard Canadian club is not, but they have a hundred percent rye. Correct. Well. Yes. So with Canadian club drinker, I would go to something like lot 40 or Canadian club, hundred percent rye. Right. Uh, both those are far more rye forward heavy. So where a Canadian club is very kind of neutral on the rye, you get a little bit of the rye notes, but it's, it's, it's a little settled. Um, a lot number 40, uh, produced at a Hiram Walker, um, or um, Gooderham and Warts is a good example, or you know, uh, CC, Crown Royal, 100% Rye, are all great products to kind of expand that palette. Um, those are kind of good branching off points right there. So one of, of uh, like I say, I'm a, I'm a whiskey drinker. I wouldn't say that I'm a aficionado, but uh, I have my, my preferences. Um, and you know, for a long time, I was collecting bottle after bottle and I wanted that the variation and and you know different scotches different bourbons different ryes but I felt like you got to pare it down to maybe five or six or so and I know this is a concept that you sort of developed too is it like your 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 cupboard of six or something like that yeah 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 uh, marketing departments uh from the industry would tell me that the average whiskey collector has about six bottles um, but the idea is somebody usually starts, if you're doing scotch, they usually start with a Glenlivet or a Glenfiddich. Right. And where do you go from there? And it's actually kind of easy to figure that out because if you've already made a choice between Glenlivet and a Glenfiddich, it kind of already leads you on a path. This is interesting. Okay. All right. Right. Cause people like their glens, right? They love there's their glens. All, there's all kinds of glens, right? 
uh, my wife and I, when we were in Brooklyn a few years ago, we did a whiskey tasting. We had a, did some flights of whiskey, and she discovered Glenfiddich. Glenfiddich 12, actually, mm-hmm. is hers. I know a lot of people like the 15. She's a, a 12 kind of girl, right? So we've sort of built from there. I always got to have a bottle for her, right? Right now she's not drinking because she's pregnant. <laughs> I always got, <laughs> I always got to have my bullet bourbon. Um, I always like to have a rye, so that's usually like a Forty Creek or hundred percent Canadian Club, something like that. Um, always got to have a Johnny Black. My mm-hmm. wife's family's Indian, and that is a necessity. You got to have a bottle of black on hand for when people come by. Then the rest is open. If I'm starting with a Glenfiddich Twelve. Where do I go from there? And how does that differ if, if, if you're starting with a Glenlivet instead of a Glenfiddich? Um, Glenfiddich is a little sweeter, and it's right. based on uh, European oak flavors. It tends to be sweeter. Uh, it tends to be a drier whiskey. Uh, Glenlivet uh, and maybe Balvini, another good example, are very much American oaked. So they use American oak barrels. Uh, tend to be a little bit more citrus, acidic, more vanilla flavored. So already you've kind of made a decision which way you want to go. Um, so Glenfiddich drinkers um, would love the Macallan series, would love, uh, and the Macallan tends to be expensive, but there's cheaper opportunities like Glenfarcus comes and goes from the LCBO, uh, a really sherry forward, like, you know, aged in these old European barrels, and they're just wonderfully, wonderfully forward on that sweetness and the dry tannins. And just if you're a Bordeaux drink, if you're like a dry wines, this, that kind of Glenfiddich, Glenfarcus, that area is a great way to go. If you're a Glenvitic drinker, uh, Balvini is in a great direction to go. Um, you know, there's there's all these other distilleries, Aaron Distillery. There's a lot of these kind of more American oak flavored distilleries that do a really good job. Um, on the bourbon side, if you like Bullet, you want to you love a rye heavy bourbon. So Four Roses is a great direction to go. Um, if you hate Bullet, well, now you might be going to something more like a, a Beam product. So maybe. Um, uh, you know, maybe going with a, like if you like something not higher proof, maybe going with like a Knob Creek, um, in that direction. It's got a little bit of less rye flavor. Uh, so really, you kind of make your choices and you kind of see what you like. I do find the one consistent thing is you you'll you'll start with forty percent proof, where you're going to kind of move up to proof levels. Uh, the higher the proof, you're going to get a little bit more flavor on that uh, from the barrels and from the grain. So you kind of always go start at forty percent, maybe move to something that's forty five or or forty eight. Now, and all and these whiskeys that you've you've mentioned, are these? I mean, you're gonna have to spend some money, especially if you get into the the scotches. Are there any in there that you think are cost prohibitive? Yeah, you know, a lot of whiskeys are. Yeah. Um, it, it's really that's that's the fact is you don't have to spend a lot of money for whiskey, and that's been the saying all along. But it is getting harder and harder to get there. Um, so a lot of the products I mentioned are hundred dollars or less. Um, I would suggest for me, you know, one of the things I write in my book is if you have $300, spend that on three to five whiskeys. Don't spend it on one whiskey. Now, if you are going to splurge somewhere, mm-hmm. what's, what's the one treat I, I, I should go for? Keeping in mind that, yeah, I've sort of gone down that lymphatic path. Uh, Buna Heinem, uh, is a really great distillery. Um, and also, uh, Brooklady, I would say those are the two distilleries you want to edge towards. Um, I wouldn't spend it on something like Johnny Walker Blue Label, uh, for example. Johnny right. Walker Black is great. Uh, yeah. It's a yeah. really fantastic uh, blended scotch, but something like a Blue Label is really intended to be on a shelf of somebody that has a million different scotches and has, or maybe just has that one special scotch. 
Um, but I, I wouldn't spend it on a very popular mass-produced product. I would spend it on those smaller, lesser-known products. The, the Johnny Walker Blue seems to be like, to me, in my world, it's like the bows of of scotches, where it's it's got that name and it's great. Yeah. Hey, and you won't you won't be you're not going to get a bad product. Yeah. But take that same money, and wow, you can really get something very special, right? So okay, so we're building my my cupboard. I'm going to say I'm going to take six. I've got my Johnny Walker Black. I've got my Bullet. I've got my Glenfiddich 12. I'm for a uh, rye, maybe, like you said, something like a lot 40. Lot number 40 is great. Right? Yeah. Lot number 40. Okay. Well, there you go. Bunheimi, right? Yeah. Would be a nice sort of splurge kind of purchase. Uh, the 18-year-old Bunheim is a really great splurge, yes. And I, and I got room for, for one more. Round out my cupboard. So um, I, I would say uh, you would go with another bourbon uh, in that list um, from an affordability standpoint. Uh, one of my favorite, which I think is both a beautiful bottle and a wonderful product, would be Blanton's um, original bourbon. Uh, if you look at the bottle, it looks... The first time I saw it, I thought this was some sort of ancient bottle found in the bottom of the ocean that's just been found. Like right. I was just like, I can't believe I'm paying $12 a shot for this. It looks beautiful. Um, but it is, it is a very kind of sweet, dry bourbon. So I would say if, if Blanton's is around, if Four Roses Single Barrel is around, if Bullet 10 is around, that, that's kind of where you right. want to round out the cabinet. All right. Thanks so much, Mark. Thank you. All right, so that was Brian speaking with... Whiskey aficionado, Mark Bylock. <laughs> Come on, give me more. If you want more, yes, uh, check out Mark's uh, uh, podcast. It's called The Whiskey Topic. It's great. With uh, his co-host. Yes, Jamie Johnson. girl, Jamie Johnson. Who yeah. runs a bourbon club in uh, the city. Um, they, they talk all kinds of... They get really deep into it. They so. do. And it's one of those things that for me... As someone who doesn't trust myself with hard liquor, um, I could still get down with it. I mean, I guess it's relevant to the work that I do, so I should pay attention on that level at least. But I can just say it was um, still relevant and interesting. And if you're remotely curious about beverages and things like that, you should definitely check it out. It's got some history in there. Got some, you know, yeah. cultural And hey, if you stuff. try some of these whiskeys that we were mentioning, or if you got some other recommendations for yes, us, yes. just uh, let us know what's going on. Absolutely. You know, on yeah. the social media. What? <laughs> <laughs> Little housekeeping? Yeah. So, just a couple of things to know about. Um, uh, this weekend, we're in full swing with Luminato. Uh, cultural festival that happens here every year. A lot of fun. Uh, this weekend, there is the Neighborhood Food Festival, which is happening just across the street from Union on Front Street downtown. Um, and the Newcomer's Kitchen, in combination with Cater Toronto, um, is going to be there peddling nice. some delicious food. Um, the Newcomer's Kitchen is actually super cool. It is run out of the Depaneur. If you're in Toronto, uh, you may have noticed this very cute little spot at the corner of uh, college in Gladstone in the West End. It is a neat pop-up kind of space. That's how I was aware of it for the longest time. But now they are creating this thing called the Newcomer Kitchen. Essentially understanding that there was all these new Syrian refugees in the city and finding out that they were in a transitional space just staying in hotels. Um, the Depanar opened up and offered them their kitchen. They have created the space and decided to cook together and then we're just sort of thinking why not um, offer this to the public and then that 
can help pay for all the food that they're eating and all that sort of stuff. Why not open it up? And then uh, they've linked up with Vanessa, who is helping them um, get ready for this market opportunity, as she would call it. And uh, if you're around, absolutely go down to Front Street this weekend and check it out. I will do my darndest to be there because... I want to eat that. Why not? Oh, yeah. yeah. For mm. sure. Sounds good. Absolutely. So that's another episode of Foodstuffs. Thanks okay. to Glenford Jameson for connecting us with Mark Bylock, the and, whiskey man. And to Vanessa Lenny. And to Vanessa Lenny, <laughs> of course, yes. Yeah, the principal consultant at Cater Toronto, among many other hats that she wears in her life. Thanks as always to Ken Stauer and Eric Betlam at CIUT, despite the fact that we are actually <laughs> recording <laughs> at my little home studio Yay. amongst uh, hanging sleeping bags and pillows and, baby and corners. boxes. Yes. Yeah. But thanks as always to CIUT, of course. Always appreciate you. If you want to connect with us on social media, as previously alluded to, you can find us at Foodstuffs Life on Instagram and on Twitter. You can search for us as Foodstuffs on Facebook and we'll pop up. And you can find our website at foodstuffs.life. Don't forget, you can subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, or any other place you get your podcasts. By searching Foodstuffs. Um, if you're in there... And you've heard the podcast before and you feel so compelled, you should give us a review. That just lets people find us a little bit easier. We would greatly appreciate it. Yeah. Thanks so much for listening. I'm Jessica Walker. And I'm Brian Goman. See you in two weeks. <laughs>